Well, I heard about an Austrian composer. His name was Franz Joseph Haydn. Now, that may not be a name that we recognize all that much these days, but he has written a number of songs in our hymn books. And there was one particular piece of music that Franz Joseph Haydn had written long ago. All the other instruments in the band had been playing pianos, violins, and so forth. The only ones in his orchestra who, who were not playing was his flute section. And there was this one piece of music that he had written in it where the flutes remained silent throughout the first 75 measures. They came in at last on the upbeat of the 75th measure. Now, if you can imagine a song that has 75 measures plus in it, nine measures to a page, we're talking about coming in on the upbeat of the 75th measure. And so here are nine measures, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one page. Then you've got 18. Then you've got 27. Then you've got 36. 45, 54, 63, and then 72. But once you reach that 72nd measure, you still have measure 73, measure 74. And then you've got the upbeat of the 75th. And then if you were a flute player at last, finally, you got to stand up and to play your part in the band. But, I mean, imagine being one of those flute players where everybody else around you is making sweet music. You're the only ones who are, it feels like contributing absolutely nothing. But then, I mean, how disciplined would you have to be? How long-suffering would you have to be to just sit there through 74 measures until at last your critical time had arrived. Now, in so many ways, that story comes to mind as I read these words um, in the letter of 2 Timothy chapter 4, words that we know very much so. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, of course, is Paul's, well, it's, it's his swan song. This is Paul's Joshua 24 moment. This is Paul's great commission just before the end of his life comes. He senses that it is just around the corner. And here's what he writes to, to a young evangelist, Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1. He writes that, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom." And then he says this, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears, what? Tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, they and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. 
Now, among my um, anybody who I know who is a minister, especially at the school where I went to, whose very theme message is just that, preach the word. We get very excited. We get revved up when we hear this chapter read. We hear preach the word and we're like, yes, yes, we love that. Let's, let's preach the word because a time is coming when they will not have an appetite for what is true anymore. He says, be ready in season and out. And again, we're like, yes, there is no off season for the gospel. Let's always be ready and prepared. He says, correct others. And we're like, yes, we really love that. We get to correct other people. And then he says, rebuke. Oh, that's even better. Yes, we get to rebuke people to their faces sometimes. And there are some who enjoy that a little bit too much. I've experienced. And yet there's a missing ingredient in Paul's great commission, though. Has anybody seen what the missing ingredient of this chapter is that, that we so often unintentionally gloss right over? We're very excited about preaching the word, and we really should be. But maybe one of the reasons why so many ministries are as weak as they are it's because we are missing, completely glossing over the missing ingredient of Paul's swan song. And that is that all of these great and very necessary things must be done, notice, with great patience. Now you might have a translation which might read, with the utmost of great patience. All of these things are especially needed by this young evangelist, Timothy. But they're also very much needed by this, this, this young evangelist named David. And in our own way of, of going outside these walls with this gospel, this is something that, that all the rest of us need as well. With great patience and instruction. Now as he says, with great patience, that is the Greek word makrothumeo. And what macrothumeo means, it does mean a forbearance. It means that one is long-suffering, yes. But really, the most helpful meaning that I have ever heard is actually not a word definition, but a mental image. And I find this so interesting about the Greek language. Because many times in the Greek language, not, not always, but every now and then, they would use, in addition to a word definition, they would also use a, you know, a mental image for the mind to really grasp hold of. And in the Greek, another meaning for the word makrothumeo means one who is not standing. One who is sitting down and who is long-suffering. Or in other words, a person who is one who has great patience is one who is seated in their hearts. And I think all of us can go back to times in our life where we just want it to just explode and, and erupt out of our seats. And yet, that person whose lives and whose soul is governed by the Holy Spirit, they are a person who is seated. They are seated in their hearts. They are seated in their souls. They are seated emotionally. And in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
Paul is saying, Timothy, be seated as you spread and as you preach and as you rebuke and as you encourage. Make sure that you are seated for the people who you will take this message to. And so we got to be patient, you guys. One problem with that, we're 21st century Americans. I mean, we're living in the most vastly impatient culture and society that has ever roamed this earth. We hate to wait. I mean, we expect instant results in this culture, do we not? We expect instant success, instant progress. And as the old adage goes in our culture, at least it's becoming this way, give it to me easy and give it to me right now. You might be thinking, that's not exactly accurate, preacher. Maybe it is more, give it to me yesterday. I wanted it yesterday. I'm so impatient about it. You know, I, I experienced this not that long ago when we were there in Florida still. Our, our internet was not exactly quick one day. And I was trying to research something and I just slammed my, my hand down on the desk going, come on, this thing is so slow. And then it registers in my mind. That took three seconds to load on the screen. Where have we arrived as a culture when, when three seconds feels like three hours? Give it to me easy. And give it to me yesterday. You know, I remember when, when the internet first came out. And I'm glad that there aren't any young kids here because I would sound so old to them if I said that. But... I remember when the internet first came out, if you wanted to connect to America Online, you would have to have a literal modem plugged into your computer. But if your mom wanted to use the phone, guess what? You had to wait until she was done. And so she's on the phone for half an hour, then it becomes an hour and a half, and becomes two hours, and you have to wait until she's done. And then once she's done, here's a modem there into the computer, and it felt like you had to wait 20 minutes for this thing to connect. Not anymore, huh? Many times I've been at the grocery store and I have a guy who is ahead of me in line and he's just now grabbing his wallet so that he can pay. But the guy behind me is nudging me in the back of the leg with his shopping cart. And I can't tell you how many times this has happened where, I, where, where in my mind I'm thinking, this guy hasn't even paid yet and you're already trying to, to nudge me out of your way. What kind of society are we living in when we can't wait two minutes of our lives? I think every single person in this room has experienced this one, where you are at a red light, but the very millisecond that light turns green, the guy behind us is leaning on his horn, revving up his engine, tailgating us. And I mean, why? Simply because we haven't gone from zero to 300 miles an hour in one second? I just wonder how many crashes have been caused, how many fatalities in car crashes have been caused because someone couldn't wait three seconds. It's the kind of culture that we're living in. You know, we love the green light because what does green mean? Green means go, 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 go 80 miles an hour. Yet we don't like that yellow light as much, do we? 
Because the yellow says slow down. And we absolutely detest that red light because what that red light is saying is that word that we, we despise so much in this culture, stop. Be still and wait. We are people who does not like those words, stop, wait, long. And yet they're very necessary in our society. I remember when, when I was in high school, how my cousin and I, every day, we would skip lunch just so we could save up all of our lunch money. And then at the end of the week, we would take our lunch money and go and buy, or go and buy a CD with it every single week. And that was nice, but if there was really only just one song that you wanted, you would have to buy the whole entire CD for about 20 bucks. Not anymore. Just last week, I was listening to a song, and I realized that I just bought this song while I was at a red light. It took me four seconds to buy this song and to have it on my loudspeakers. What kind of society are we living in when, when it seems like everything is that instant and that immediate? I mean, we want it right now, do we not? And yet God doesn't exactly always work that way, does he? And yet, then again, it seems like this life and a life lived for God, that, that it's got a way of making flute players of all of us, though. Because, again, you know, we remember those musicians who were under Franz Joseph Haydn, and those all of those musicians want it so bad to just jump out of their, their seats and to play their parts. But again, for 74 measures, they were doing what? For those 74 excruciatingly long measures, this is what they were doing. They were seated. They were waiting. And I mean waiting and waiting and waiting. And they were being silent, but... They knew that their, their time was coming very soon. And you know what? This is the exact theme that we see all throughout Scripture in the Word of God. Because we remember back to our ancestors, the Israelites, and we remember how for 430 years, all that they knew was 430 years of slavery. And to really put that number in perspective for us, 430 years. Our own country has existed for 242 years. So we're talking almost twice as long as America has existed. Those Israelites, generation after generation after generation, all that they have known from their birth unto their death is slavery. Wondering, is this ever going to end? And sadly, just countless generations, that answer had been no. We also know that after Malachi had written that, that very last word in the Old Testament, even though God had sent prophet after prophet at that time, suddenly we have 400 years of silence. 400 years of excruciating silence between Malachi and the manger that Jesus had been born in. And I just so often am intrigued by, by all those people who lived in that gap. 
I wonder how many mothers who gave birth wondered, is my son the Messiah? Is this the one who we have been waiting for? I wonder how many people in Israel in those days looked at a small child who had anything unusual about him in terms of his demeanor or his pose and wondered, is this him? Is this him? You see, in the days of John the baptizer, these people were, were very much waiting and expecting the coming of the Messiah. And yet it was God and God alone who knew when the exact right moment would be. And as it says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God knew exactly when the time would be right. God remained seated until the upbeat of the 75th measure. Well, how about us? The Israelites had 430 years of slavery. Later on, they had 400 years of silence. We have over 2,000 years of suspense. Because among the very last things our Lord ever wrote to us in Scripture is this. I mean, literally, the last thing he ever says is, Yes, I am coming quickly. And we read that and we just kind of scratch our head and we're like, you're coming quickly, huh? That was more than 2,000 years ago. Are you sure that you're coming quickly or were you just messing with us when you said that? And so many times throughout our lives, we will reach the point where, where our mindset is, Jesus, are you ever coming back? It says elsewhere in Scripture that we groan in these tents, yearning, longing to be clothed with our body from on high. Jesus says he's coming like a thief in the night. Yet we wonder, when is that night going to be if it wasn't 2,000 years of, you know, long ago in the past? And yet then we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, that our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we all know that part, but then the part that we miss you know, much of the time, from which we eagerly, oh, there's that word again, wait, where we eagerly wait for our Savior. And I mean, it goes on and on in Scripture about being seated until the 75th measure. Long ago in the book of um, um, in Genesis, we see Noah. What is Noah doing for, for maybe 100 plus years, maybe 120 years? He is building and building and building. He's waiting and waiting and waiting. He has no idea what, what rain even is, but at just the right time, God makes good on his promise. I think about Abraham and Sarah all the way back in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yet it didn't happen overnight, did it? It took so many years. Even as he makes a promise that I'm going to give you a son, one day goes by and she has not conceived. One year goes by, five years, six, seven, eight, nine measures. 
15 years, 16 years, 20 years plus, give or take, it took for just his son to be born when he was 100 years old. Ruth, he's got you beat. 100 years old is how old Abraham was when that promise officially started coming to fruition. God doesn't exactly operate by give it to me easy and give it to me right now, does he? I remember Naaman who has leprosy. Go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. So he dips one time and he comes back up. Nope, still a leper. Two times, three times, four measures, five measures, six measures. But on the seventh time, he comes up out of that muddy creek. Just as God had said, he has been healed of his leprosy. Naaman waited on the Lord. Joshua, I want you to, to march around Jericho for, for a week straight. And so they march around Jericho one day, nothing happens, three days, four days, five measures, six days, and then at last on the seventh day, as they march around Jericho and, the, and their trumpets blare, when they wait on the Lord, those walls come tumbling down. I love how, how we read in the book of Psalm that I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. And so wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take great courage. Yes, wait upon the Lord. Really, this is why, and anybody correct me if I'm wrong, but I have no memory of Jesus ever comparing evangelism to a McDonald's drive through Am I wrong about that? Jesus never says that it's going to be easy. Or that it's going to be instantaneous. But rather, what he does do is that he compares his gospel and evangelism to agriculture. And so, if you want to have anything that you are wanting to, to grow, it all starts with a seed. And you have to plant those seeds into the ground, but how foolish would it be if you had done that, if you had the seed in the ground, but then you came back 15 minutes later, ripped it up because it had not yet sprouted? It's going to take a lot of water. It's going to take a lot of sun. But more than anything else, it's going to take waiting and waiting and waiting. And yet at just the right time, that time will come for it to come to fruition and to produce fruit. Jesus compares evangelism to being one who is fishing. Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. You know, my only memories of going to a lake and fishing were a long time ago. I would go with my, my grandpa. And I mean, we would sit there and sit there and sit there and sit there. You know, the very first time I went fishing, I was expecting to have my line in the lake and then immediately have a fish on it. And how great would that be, by the way? And you know, that's not how it went for us, at least. And yet my grandpa had this catchphrase he would always use. He would just mutter it to himself gently. You could hardly hear it, but he would say, every time he would say, come on, fish. 
Come on, fish. And now, as a minister, I catch myself walking anywhere in the city going, Come on, fish. Come on, fish. Because I know it's not going to be instant. It's why Jesus compares those who receive this gospel to little children. You know, he calls his apostles little children, and I love that. Because anybody who's ever had a child, you remember very fondly holding your child for the very first time. I have a picture of my grandpa holding me in his hand. One hand had me in just one hand when I had been just born. And then they start cooing. And then you get so excited because they just said their very first word. And then a little bit after that, they, they have now gone for their very first step. And then a little bit after that, every father who's ever lived lies through their teeth when they say that they did not cry their eyes out when they took their um, um, son or daughter, their very first day of school, and dropped them off. And then they learn how to ride a bike. And then they learn how to drive a car. And then it seems like the very next thing that you are doing, you're going at their graduation. You're going to their wedding after that. And then, even before it hits you, you are at the hospital holding their child in your hand. Now, how ridiculous would it be if you held your, your newborn child in the palm of your hand saying that I expect you to drive me home here this afternoon. Well, I mean, that child can't even speak yet. Notice all the things that, that absolutely must come before them having a child of their own. They have to learn how to walk. They got to learn how to talk. They have to learn how to ride a bike before they can operate a car. And they have to to watch you as a couple before they can mature and have a marriage and kids of their own. And I know, I mean, how great would it be if evangelism was, was as easy as it was for Jonah at Nineveh? Jonah goes into Nineveh finally and he preaches one time and everybody repents. How great would it be if everybody we shared this gospel with was exactly like the Ethiopian eunuch? Where here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And yet that's only happened only one time in my entire life. Where I preached a sermon and there were, had a woman and her son who said, yes, we want to be baptized right now. And yet 99.9% .9 of the other time, I mean, it is wrestling in the mud. It is a struggle. But more than anything, it is waiting and waiting and waiting for it to finally get, get watered in their minds. And yet regardless, what we do is we hold on until the upbeat of the 75th measure. I mean, we, we have to learn to wait. And as crazy as it sounds, we must also love to wait. Because I... Every week, there's a reason why I never say you have to do this, but rather we must do this, because I am right here with, with you know, everybody here. I am not, the, I am not yet the, the husband that Amanda needs and deserves. You know, before we got married, I, I envisioned that, that I would be 
just, just a great husband all the time to her. And yet I am not quite what I envisioned just yet. God says you've got to be patient. I am not yet the minister that this church needs and deserves and that this city and community needs and deserves. Just about anybody who has ever done this work, there, there are just so many times where you just pour, I mean, every ounce of your blood, sweat, and tear, but then it seems like afterwards you are seated all alone in the classroom or in the auditorium after everybody's left thinking, what happened? That did not go the way that I was wanting it to go. God, I, I let you down today. I got in your way. And you know what? I am still not the Christian that I need to be. Now, I just look at myself and I think that I am such a pathetic imitation of Jesus. That I am not an immaculate image of Jesus. You know, our names may as well be not Jesus because of how unlike him we tend to be. But we need to be patient with ourselves too. Yes, here in 2 Timothy 4, he's saying that here's Timothy and you need to have great long-suffering. You need to have great patience with those who you will teach. But we also need to have that exact same measure of patience for our own selves. Because we will never be expected to be a perfect shining image of Jesus Christ. He does not expect us at all to be that. I think Amanda understands that that I'm not going to be 1,000% perfect all the time. And yet what I do need to keep doing is keep loving her more than I love my own self. That's easier said than done. And I've got to keep mimicking the way Jesus loves you guys in the way that I love my wife. You know, and as a minister, even though I'm not the minister who I need to be, I have come to understand that I've got to take it easy on myself sometimes with, with that stuff. You know, I had a lady in the church, at, a, at another church, who took great joy in pointing out that I was not as good as this older minister was. And at first, I mean, it really, I, I was really struggling with it because I thought, well, well, maybe I'm just not good enough to do this work. And yet then I learned this concept of slowing down, sitting down, and being long-suffering with my own self. Yes, he is much better than, than I will ever be, probably. And yet I'm just a work in progress. And, and by the way, so is he. So is he. It's okay if I am not quite as polished in my 11th year as a preacher, as somebody who has been doing this since the Kennedy administration. In a way, he should be that much better than me, right? He was a 34-year-old preacher just like me once upon a time, too. But regardless of of where we are having a lack of long-suffering for our own selves, never, ever write yourself off. Just because you aren't as far along in your sixth or, 
or ninth chapter as somebody who is in their 97th chapter. And yet as long as we live, we will always be that very charred, broken vessel in the hands of our potter, the Lord God. You know, the greatest advice that I ever received from from a minister, as I voice my frustrations, I am not where I need to be as a minister yet. He said, you're exactly where you need to be. Here is my secret of being a successful minister. Keep showing up. Keep relying on the Holy Spirit. And that's really all there is to it. If you are being impatient with yourself, keep showing up. That's really all there is to it. Just keep waiting and keep relying on your Lord and Savior. We need to be patient with, with you know, you know, many others too, don't we? There are those people who are just in our lives who drive us crazy. And I think about King David, how on one occasion he is with his army, and they are walking somewhere, and this guy just all of a sudden, he starts cursing David out to his face, throwing rocks at him, calling him worthless and a dog. And his right-hand man in his military says, I'm going to go cut that guy's head off right now, David. Now, he wanted to just explode out of his seat. And yet, what does King David do? All David has to do is just make one hand motion And that guy is going to be decapitated. And yet what David does is he might want to explode, but he sits down in his heart. He says, no, 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 no. Leave that guy alone. If he wants to curse me, let him curse me all he wants to. You see, he had long suffering for that man. And I don't think it's just King David. I think it's all of us where we have those kinds of people every now and then in our lives who they just want to always rip us apart. And yet what God is inviting us all to is to be seated and to wait for the upbeat of the 75th measure. That person who we are seeking to bring to Christ, they might be on the third measure And yet we are are wanting them so badly to right now be at the 75th measure. And yet what we need to do is is wait and keep sowing those seeds and keep watering those seeds as they go along. You might be on just the ninth measure of really understanding Scripture. And if you are, do not beat yourself up, but keep showing up. Keep having a heart that is always wanting to to learn and to mature, and you will get there, I promise. You might be on the 71st or on the 74th measure of your life this morning. God wants you to hold on for just a little bit while longer, and you will not be in a state where you are let down by him. And so really the most effective thing for me in learning to be a man of patience is being seated, but also here's what the catalyst is for us to be a patient people. Is we remember just how long-suffering God 
has been for us. We, re, you know, we reminisce how much mercy he's given us that we did not deserve. Now, there are times where God must act at the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, captivity. He sometimes must act. And yet I can't even remember all the times in Scripture where God wants to explode out of his seat. Moses comes down from the mountain, and, and for some reason they are all genuflecting before a golden calf. God is just about right here. Moses, I want to destroy these people. And yet, what does he do in his long-suffering for, for them? He relents. And he says, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to have long-suffering for them. And a great long-suffering at that. And I just think about us. I mean, how many times could he have exploded out of you know, his throne and struck us down because of how we were living and how he should have done that for us? And yet as we read in Psalm 103, it says that he has not dealt with us according to our sins as they deserve, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. And yet, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Because he knows that we are nothing but dust. And so what we learn by God is that true long-suffering and patience is being seated in our hearts, is reminiscing on God's long-suffering for us. And then it is standing to showcase his amazing grace for all the world to hear at the upbeat of the 75th measure. As we bring this to a close this morning, I just want to, to challenge all of us and to be very honest with ourselves. And I want to ask, where are you being childishly impatient in your life? Where, where am I and where are you exploding out of our seats in impatience? Well, it might be other people. We might think, you know, they just don't get it. They're, you know, they, they just need to get their act together. And yet what the Holy Spirit is inviting us all to is to just be seated and to be long-suffering for them. Maybe we need to be long-suffering for our own selves. Again, what he invites us to is be seated and wait on the Lord. Or maybe we need to be long-suffering for God himself. You know, I had prayed and prayed and prayed, but God has not come through for me just yet. Again, he invites us to have a seat and to be patient on our Lord. You see, the Red Sea followed slavery. The Promised Land followed the wilderness. The empty tomb followed the cross. The harvest follows a planting. And as for us, heaven follows this rat race. Let us be seated in hearts until the upbeat of the 75th measure.